Okay. Alright. Is there a way that we can get the sidebar off of there? Is it, I thought it was from my computer, but it's not. Okay. Dave, do you want to do the preamble? Yes. Um, so, uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the October 2nd MMTC meeting. Uh, this meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to staff. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. And when you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send us a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. Thank you, Dave. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the October edition of the MMTC Multimodal Transportation Commission meeting, starting with our study session, as always. For this study session, I um, thought it might be useful to have everybody kind of along for the ride as we review what's been going on for the Lawrence Land Development Code update. This technically at this point is much more of a planning and development land use sort of thing. We have yet to get to things like street widths or parking standards or anything like that that would directly affect transportation. But as I think we're all aware, there is a pretty strong connection between land use and transportation. Um, so things that happen in one zone often have some sort of indirect effect on the other. So. Because of that, I thought it would be instructive to help go through it. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, I'm the transportation representative on the steering committee for the Land Development Code update. So I've been going to a couple of meetings for the past year or so. We've gotten to the point where we now have a the first module. So as it says here on the screen, zoning and districts and uses. So basically, what can go where and what is the what that we're talking about, right? Like, what is a dwelling unit mean? What does a commercial zone mean? So it's kind of the very base layer of a zoning code. And if you're looking for stuff like minimum parking requirements or, um, geez, like variance uh, petitions and stuff like that, that's all going to come later. So we're just getting started. This is the first of three modules. All right, what I'm going to do just as a overview of this session is going to go through this great PowerPoint that our consultants put together. It's a pretty good summary and better than I could do on my own of what's going on so far, what has happened, what's going to happen. And then I think if we want to, we can go through a couple of other tools. We got this uh, very interesting zoning districts comparison. Ah, anyway, um, that is sort of an interactive GIS story. And we also have the land development code module one draft itself. So to start, we're just going to go through through this. It's pretty open-ended, so kind of stop me whenever you want. Um, we can have a discussion on whatever. There's not really any goals I have here other than just to make everybody aware and kind of hear what y'all think. So that's it. So project goals of the Land Development Code update was to kind of simplify the procedures, make sure that we're meeting the goals that we laid out in the city's comprehensive plan, Plan 2040, making it more user-friendly, not just to people who are development savvy, but also just regular folks, and also creating more predictable development outcomes. So kind of rule of law rather than, you know, rule of whatever you want, right? So here is the summary of what's been going on. 
So the, the consultants have done their best to edit as much as they can into plain language. There's, they've, they've tried to reduce a lot of the legalese and sort of development jargon that's in there, so it's a little bit easier to read. It's kind of hard for me to ascertain how successful they've been because I'm pretty familiar with this kind of language, so um, I would be curious to see if anybody has had a chance to go through it and see if it does actually make more sense than it used to. Uh, there's a couple of other things that are mostly just editorial, so we're going to go through this. These are the articles that they have touched so far. There's a lot of articles, I think like 25 in total. So it's only these ones that are part of module one. Let's see, what is, all right, so the big thing here is that they have reduced the number of zoning districts. So I guess, is anybody not familiar with zoning before I start jumping into stuff? I don't know what our general level is here. Probably. I'm pretty comfortable with it. Yeah. Some of us played SimCity as children and teenagers, so I think we probably understand zoning at least a little bit. Okay. So a lot of this was cleanup. It was trying to reduce the number of zoning districts so that, you know, it's not this complicated patchwork of zoning on our city map. They wanted to make things a little bit more easier to read, so the formatting has changed. They've, um, yeah, that's, that's basically it from right here. Okay, so recap to Plan 2040. For those of you who aren't, who aren't intimately familiar with this, which I think is probably everybody except for staff, um, th there's a whole lot of aspirational statements in this comprehensive plan that aren't necessarily enforceable, but they are meant to serve as a guide for the laws that are enforceable. So the things that the community and the steering committee came up with for Plan 2040 are now, we're now at the point where we're actually codifying that into legal uh, language. So if Plan 2040, for example, says, hey, we want a variety of housing types. Now, I don't think it got too specific in Plan 2040, but what that probably means is, okay, well, you got your classic single family residences, but also eh, townhomes, maybe accessory dwelling units, cluster housing, all, so all sorts of other kind of unusual <coughs> that maybe used to be historically prevalent, but aren't built very much anymore. There's also the desire for higher density residential developments, and this has a couple of goals behind it. Um, usage of, in, of existing infrastructure, reduction of sprawl and therefore habitat preservation and kind of the fringes of Lawrence, and also just encouraging the ability to have a walkable neighborhood by having more people in the same place. That being said, there is a big drive to maintain the form and pattern of established neighborhoods. So we don't want to turn you know things into Hong Kong, right? Everybody's fear is that density is going to take East Lawrence and make it into Hong Kong overnight. We're trying to at least maintain somewhat of a recognizable neighborhood here. Complete neighborhoods, you've probably heard like 15-minute cities or you know, those sort of terms thrown around. Basically, not having just only one type of one building and one use throughout the entire neighborhood. So having varied housing types and even a mixture of styles, densities, price ranges. It doesn't say this here, but I think it's sort of implicit elsewhere in Plan 2040 that we want to encourage more neighborhood commercial and mixed use so that people don't have to drive for every single thing that they do all day. Let's see. All right, so here's one of the interesting things that the consultants streamlined. There were a lot of legacy zoning districts, and they've kind of combined these into, I think these are more nationally universal terms, like R1, R2. I think that's more of a commonly understood thing, whereas RS40 is maybe more Lawrence-specific. So, you know, since they are combined from the previous districts, they're a little bit more ambiguous. It's low density, medium density. It's not necessarily numbers-based. Once you get into the dimensional standards, there are more numbers behind what these mean, but at least just as a, as a general understanding, you might say that low density is kind of your average suburban neighborhood. 
very low density is maybe one of those rural subdivisions on the edge of town. Medium density is something like an East Lawrence or Oriad. High density doesn't really exist outside of certain apartment complexes. And then very high density is actually brand new. So there wasn't anything that went above 32 dwelling units per acre. Okay. And here's some nice visuals of uh, what it looks like. So as you can see with these pictures, that they did a pretty good job of matching it. This is just an easier description for folks to kind of get their bearings on what these R zones look like. You'll notice that it'll kind of describe the size of the lot, relatively large, but also what else is there. Limited number of related civic uses. In this case, just civic. When you move to R2, low residential de density, well, actually it's still says related civic uses. <coughs> Sorry, for some reason I, I thought in the new code it said like a mix of uses, but I may be forgetting. Let's see here. So then you get to residential medium density and all of a sudden you see like, okay, multifamily housing is probably included here. Limited commercial uses, that's what I was remembering. And then the residential high density, we're probably getting closer to apartments at this scale, or condos at least. Still smaller than urban scale, whatever that means, which I think is kind of subjective by person. And then there's actually a carved out zone just for residential manufactured home parks or mobile home parks. So I think this was included to kind of ensure that we keep this relatively affordable form of housing in the code and not accidentally um, legalize it out of existence. Okay. I ask a question? Yeah, definitely. Where do tiny homes fit into that? Um, it depends. As the principal structure, I yeah. think they would fit in R4 and R5, or maybe R3, R4, and R5. So if someone created a village for tiny homes, would it be I think it similar to a mobile home? It could fit under a couple, because I think it has to do with the density. So I think for if you had a very high density of tiny homes, maybe that's R4. If you just had one on a kind of a large lot, maybe that's R2 or R1. I think it, it's important to note that I don't think there even was previously, but there's no minimum size for homes. They can be whatever size you want, pretty much, as long as they can fit on the plot of land. So at the bottom end, as but low as you're comfortable going, really. If the lot, though, is um, pretty small for a tiny home, mm -hmm. would that be permitted? Yes, I believe so. So as you'll notice in the dimensional table that I think are coming up in a bit, um, some of the dimensions have been reconfigured to be a little bit more permissive at the lower end of the scale. Um, because I, I think asking about tiny homes was, was part of the impetus for doing this in the first place. Like, we don't really allow it easily. And then there's the whole question of tiny homes as accessory dwelling units, which is, mm -hmm. that's a very different conversation, so. Okay, let's see here. So here are our um, dimensionals, dimensional standards. Um, I'm not sure what they were trying to call attention to here with the orange, but probably things that are new. I will note that there's been a lot of back and forth on what exactly to call multifamily units. There's a lot of ways you can call them. And at this point, I think they're kind of throwing the kitchen sink definitions at this table. Because a lot of these are really similar to each other and almost indistinguishable. So dwelling, detached, or duplex. Apparently, those are considered the same thing. Um, small lot, it's not really, I think the only difference is that you can go smaller on this lot. Dwelling attached versus duplex, not really sure of the distinction, I think. When they say dwelling attached, that means across a lot line. So maybe like a row house or something. Or one of those, we have a lot of these here, where it's a duplex, technically, but it's actually two different properties. Um, 
that just happened to share a wall. Okay, so what we have here that I, I think do have some bearing on transportation in terms of just how things like fit together in the community. What you'll see is that there are minimum lot widths, which kind of will directly correlate to how many of these things you can fit on a given street or in a neighborhood. So for the most part, they're sticking with 40 feet as minimum lot width. I think this is fairly similar. I think maybe we're at 50 feet now, maybe, I don't know, 75 or 100 feet for the really big lots. But I do think there's a, a little bit of reduction across the board. So that is different. Um, just injecting some personal opinion here. One of the comments that I, that I offered on this draft is that if we're keeping things to 40 feet as a minimum, then we're pretty much completely precluding the possibility of a fee simple townhome that's connected on both sides. Because that's about 20, 25 feet at the most. So if you want to build a townhome but you have to have a 40 foot lot, you're not gonna build townhomes. You're gonna have apartments that look like townhomes but you won't be able to individually own your property and the house on it and connect with somebody else. So I think that's one of the flaws here. I think it's mostly just a failure of imagination. There's not a lot of row houses in Lawrence. There are a lot elsewhere in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. But specifically, Kansas does not have a lot of these. Let's see. Um, oh, you also see there's a, a very new dimension thing here that the consultant asked us on our opinion for and got a variety of answers. Should there be a minimum density? My opinion was no, which is, if you, if you know me and my views, you would think that might be odd because I do generally want things to be more dense, walkable neighborhoods, blah, blah, blah. That being said, I feel like it's redundant. If you have dimensional standards that allow for a certain lot coverage and amount of things on a lot, most developers are gonna build as many things as they can to maximize the profit. So it's kind of perfunctory to have a minimum density. I think if, if it was kind of the old days where everybody developed their own property, maybe you would want some kind of minimum density to make sure that you don't have a bunch of farmsteads in Old West Lawrence, right? But I, th I think in this case, it seems a little bit unnecessary. Um, developers also didn't love this because it was unclear. There's different ways to calculate it. So I think gross is saying, okay, if you account for all the roads and the right-of-ways and the sidewalks, the acreage in this, in this particular neighborhood has to have still four units. Um, if, you, if you were to exempt the square footage of all the sidewalks and roads, then it would be a very different number. So I'm kind of surprised that that's still in here, and we'll see what happens with the second draft. Density maximum, I feel like, also is kind of redundant because the rest of the dimensional standards kind of do that for you. Okay, so there are things for accessory buildings now, which could be a number of things. It could be a shed, a garage, or even an accessory dwelling unit. I don't believe any of these setbacks are anywhere less than they used to be, but at least they're now codified. The reason I think this is important is, is because it, it still kind of affects like how many things you can build in an area, right? So the, the lower the setbacks are, the more dense you can have your neighborhoods. Okay, um, this is kind of interesting as well. So I, I think these numbers were already in, I don't think they've changed very much, but the coverage of a lot is, is about the only, um, I don't really know how to say this. It's a fairly discrete metric that you can follow where even if you have very permissive setbacks, you still have to hit this 70% number, for example. So the amount of impervious surface, which is realistically roof and driveway, can't be more than 70% of the total lot area. What I thought was particularly weird is that these are different numbers. Principal building coverage and impervious surface coverage are not the same number. So that implies that 
if you have a building covering 40% of the lot, you can still add asphalt and other stuff that's impervious, but you cannot add any more structure. I think that's odd because if the concern was stormwater, these would be the same number. I don't think the concern is stormwater, and I haven't gotten a straight answer why they're different. So. Could it include the accessory dwelling units uh, if they were added to the lot? I th yeah, I don't, I don't really know how that figures Burgula. in. Yeah, I'm just thinking of all the ways that people add things to their lots. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say probably 99% of the cases, it's parking or it's driveway. I mean, most houses are made up of that. I just think it's, yeah, it just seems strange that it's, even in the definitions, it says, like, impervious surface coverage is directly related to how much stormwater comes off a lot. Like, okay, if that's the case, it should probably be the same number. I feel like this is where it kind of hits on transportation stuff, right? If, if we're allowing only a smaller number of lot coverage to be for the building itself, it's almost like encouraging to build a different, you know, additional impervious surface. Like, you may as well, you got the room, right? Whereas if you wanted to maximize your profit as a developer, you probably would want more building because that's worth more. Or, or maybe you might want a garage that has dwellings on top of it, right? But if you can't do that because only, you know, 70% of your lot can be covered by, by structure, then that's kind of limiting. And I, I feel like it kind of indirectly encourages extra <coughs> parking. So those are my thoughts. I don't know what you guys think about that, but I may be reading too much into it, but I feel like there's some reasoning here that is not obvious from how it's written. All right, um, building height, there's, res there's restrictions. Um, so really nothing in town can get higher than 55 feet if it's residential. So seems kind of weird to me, but I, I think a lot of these are kind of concessions to, to ease fears of change. Um, fears of all of a sudden having you know a five-story building right next to your one-story rancher, which is unlikely to happen, but it's, it's those kind of fears that keep opposition to zoning change is the strong. Five stories a limit <clears throat> from the fire department? I would doubt it. We have a giant hook and ladder truck, or whatever you call it these days, a tiller truck. It's pretty big. If it can't reach 55 feet, then what's the point? Um, I'd, I haven't heard anything about fire department in this uh, so far, so I, I don't imagine it's NFPA related. Do you guys know anything about that? I don't, no. We mostly run into them with street widths. Like 20 feet curb to curb is like the absolute minimum that they can do. But other than that, like, Height is not something I've heard of before. I don't think it's limited to the fire truck. Cause I, think it, I think it's just like for aesthetics, honestly. Hillary's trying to ask a question. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so five stories is generally like a four over podium yeah. design. So it's like four stories over a concrete base, which is typically why you don't see something exceed five stories. And it's just for building code standards. So are you saying, well, I may be extrapolating here, but given the sheer prevalence of podium buildings, it almost seems like the height limitation is kind of redundant because the way that finance and zoning and everything go, it's kind of self-regulating. Like that's the kind of building most developers are gonna build. There's very few, like if you're going higher, go really high. It would be very silly to build a six-story building. You know, you may as well build 10 at that point if you're going concrete and steel. Yeah, I think the height restriction is what is really applicable there, and not necessarily the number of stories. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, 55 feet is not super tall. I feel like we have buildings that are taller than 55 feet in town. I could be wrong, but... Yeah, and that's like about 10 feet of story, so it's not terribly tall. Yeah, I mean, 
Do we have residential facilities that are? Probably not solely residential. Okay. Hmm. There's that weird one on like Kentucky Street. It's like a senior center. So this sounds kind of tall. This is residential district. So are there? I think they're higher for commercial. Different heights. For, okay. Yeah, or at least mixed. I think they're higher. So let's keep that in mind. And as we go to the, the dimensional table, let's let's find out. <laughs> um, oh, that was the other thing. So before we get too too far, I'm gonna go to a page in here that I think will will be helpful in understanding what's going on. Um, so each zone or district in the code comes with pictures and diagrams, which is which is new. So this is pretty cool. So for each of the zoning districts, this one happens to be residential load density. It shows you all the measurements it's talking about, and then it gives you them in a table so you can pretty much see what's going on. It also gives you a picture of what you might expect to see in this area. So you got R1s, you got R2, you're starting to see something a little bit more, slightly more dense suburban, but you know. Then you get R3, and I think what this is trying to show is like townhomes, but they're very modern looking, so it just looks like you're kind of generic apartment building. R4 is starting to look a little bit more like the podium buildings that Hillary brought up. Or the, this is more like almost like a Brooklyn brownstone on, on the right side here. And then you got R5, very high residential density. So we don't have anything like this. It's also, okay, this was five stories, good. So what some of us on the steering committee thought was odd is that these sure seem like the kind of places, even this little awning down here kind of indicates there might be non-residential uses as well. But this is still a almost firmly residential zoning. You get to mixed use, and the buildings look pretty similar. Um, but now they more explicitly call for uses. Um, the consultants, um, what's the word? Their justification for keeping these separate instead of just kind of lumping them all in together was that, well, they're still probably going to be you know, structures that are fully residential, just regular apartment buildings. And I feel like it's maybe a little bit self-limiting in that it doesn't allow for the possibility that in the future as needs change, you might want to have a non-residential use on the ground floor, whether that be a gym or a small cafe or something. So personal opinion again, but I, I don't fully agree with the separation of mixed use and high density of residential because they they're functionally very similar. The only difference is like what's allowed on the ground floor, basically. So I'm not sure what they're going to do with that in the draft two, but we'll see. OK. So this is mixed use. This is another one of those kind of new things that is more Plan 2040 related. According to the steering committee and the voters and the commission and everything, we want to support mixed use development while retaining and redeveloping established commercial areas being able to serve the surrounding and existing future neighborhoods. What's slightly more interesting is revising the home occupation codes to encourage startup businesses from the, the home. So a home occupation, there's two classes of them. If you're not familiar with these, I think they're just the Lawrence definition. I think is class A is just like, I work from my house to be like an office guy, essentially. And that's a, that counts as a class A, like just doing work, but in your house. Nobody comes to it. There's no visitors, no clients, no no employees. Class B is when there are employees or clients, but not a lot. So maybe like a barbershop, a massage studio, a therapist office, very, very small-scale businesses that could work fine in your house. Um, there are a whole bunch of regulations in Module 1 that say kind of what you can do, what you can't do. It's more broad-based than it used to be, but it still is um, it, 
it's it seems like a trend in the right direction to kind of allow more work from home stuff. Okay. There's a whole bunch of districts that were that were combined into these because we didn't. That's not true. We did have a mixed use district. It's been used like twice. So, um, all the interesting stuff of that MU district in our current code are kind of what influenced the rest of these mixed use codes. There was a lot of um, of encouragement for hey, if you're near transit, then you don't need to have as many parking spaces. Or um, I forget what else there was, but. But there's a whole bunch of incentives for doing mixed use, but the problem was you had to rezone it to that in the first place, and that was the barrier. So now, by by sort of reconfiguring all these former commercial things, whether that be office or strip mall or mixed use or small cafe style, now they're all mixed use. So the idea is that there really shouldn't be any barrier to adding a floor of apartments above a strip mall. There shouldn't be any barrier to adding a cafe on the street corner in a relatively dense neighborhood. That's the idea. I'm not sure how it's gonna work out in practice, but yeah, that's what they intended. They're still keeping a separate one for commercial downtown just because the dimensional standards are so different for downtown currently. And I think there's not a lot of appetite to extend those dimensional standards to the rest of the city. Um, basically meaning there can only be one place that looks like downtown. <clears throat> All right, so this is just more of a description of what the mixed use might look like. I think I already ran through those diagrams of what it could look like in the code itself, but yeah, these are all fairly straightforward. Similar dimensional standards to the, the residential stuff where you have a minimum lot area, and there really isn't a minimum lot area for these, which is wild. Um, I think it's interesting that they just took out all the minimums, which is something I would encourage, but you don't see that in the residential zones quite as much. Even for industrial, um, I think industrial general is like power plant, scrapyard. Like it's kind of the nasty stuff that you don't want in your house. They they still don't have a minimum zoning. Um, I think that's part of the recognition that you don't need to regulate everything. There are certain things that you know have to be a certain size, and you're not going to see a 50 square foot lot, for example, right? This is not going to happen. So there's not really a a direct need to define a lower limit on that lot area. Okay. Um, Setbacks have been reduced to a decent amount, so you still can't have a lot of stuff touching each other. Well, sorry, that's not actually true. On the interior side, so I think this is indicating that if you wanted to have things that look kind of more like downtown, you probably could. I think I would need to delve into the definitions more to know exactly what this means, but these are lower setbacks than used to be in the code. All right, so here we are at our impervious surface coverage. Kind of the same story as as everywhere else, where the building coverage is not the same number as total, which seems interesting. So building heights are here, and it looks like we can go a lot higher. So downtown commercial can go as high as 90 feet, which if I had to guess is probably the height of the tallest building currently downtown. Um, oh, Hillary, is your hand raised, or is that a cursor in front of you? Oh no, sorry. <laughs> That's what it looked like. I guess if it was yellow, that would be correct. Okay, what else we got? All right, any questions on residential mixed commercial zoning districts before we move on to more specific stuff? I feel like this is kind of the main meat of module one. I'm curious if any of this would change the possibility of some of the large shopping areas um, being more densely developed. 
Yes. Like removing parking spaces to build more. It should. Beyond just a, another scooters. Yeah. So, <laughs> we can always use more scooters. I don't think we're maxed out in taco shops either. So strip commercial is probably what you're referring to, if I had to guess. So that's M3. So I'm thinking like, I'm trying to think what. Like South Iowa comes to mind. Yeah. A lot of parking lots. Marcarisa, you know, like yep. strip commercial. So that is what is now C M3. That's now M3. So lot coverage can now be as high as 80%. That's pretty good. So that, however, will all hinge on what the parking requirements are. None of this matters if the parking requirements still are something like three spaces per thousand square feet of retail or something. So I think until yeah. we see that, kind of hard to draw conclusions from this. It looks good, but we don't know what the specifics are yet. Is that going to come out in version two? November, I think. Okay. So there's a difference between versions and modules. So right. modules are kind of the stages we progress in the thing. Um, module one is what I'm talking about here, which is districts and uses. Module two is development standards, which is like more setbacks, parking, aesthetics, historic stuff. Um, module three is processes. So the development application, variance requests, appeals, stuff like that. Um, I do think module three actually may come into play for us, because currently, planning commission has to review everything. And a lot of stuff they review has to do with parking and bike trail access and sidewalk widths and whether you have to install sidewalks at all. And that kind of falls under MMTC a little bit. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I may push for a little bit more involvement of us if that's something that the commission is interested in to try to, you know, steer stuff that is more in our expertise before it, it's not steerable anymore. So, um, all right, downtown stuff. Let's see. I don't think this is anything that you don't know. Hmm? Uh, Oh, hi. Yeah, I think your idea is great, Nick. Um, I think as much involvement as we can have with sidewalks and variance requests that developments ask for those, fee and lose, that kind of thing. And then also, I mean, minimum parking requirements are a huge part of how land use is determined. So um, I, I particularly feel like I would like to be more involved with that as a commission if we can be. Yeah, I think that will take some talk um, because I know in the past there's been almost a reluctance on past members of the commission to want to get into the weeds too much on stuff. Like Steve Evans, for example, comes to mind. He was much more of a, a larger ideas guy than a looking into the details kind of guy. Um, so I'll be kind of curious to see what direction we can take. And I, I think there's probably some legal implications as well. Like the planning commission is a quasi-judicial body. We're just a citizen board. So we don't really have the same power or mandate that, that they do. That being said, I feel like there's maybe ways we can get creative to, to at least have an insight into them. Because you know, minimum parking requirements kind of make sense to be under planning and development, but also under transportation. Because those cars got to go somewhere when they stop moving. So um, anyway. OK, so downtown, these are the desirable land uses. I don't think there's really a lot of argument there. It's kind of a mixed bag of everything. This is just a recap of the downtown master plan that happened 2019 to 2021 or so. So anyway, not a whole lot to do here that hasn't already been said in that other plan. I think industrial is a little bit more interesting. So let's see. There's definitely a desire to keep a lot of industrial land open for potential development, for economic growth and stuff. There has been some reconfiguration. 
there's no longer something that's going to be called the industrial business park zone that's being uh, retired. That was kind of an odd zone where it's like commercial, but also a little bit of industrial. Like if somebody's maybe doing like maybe heavier IT work, like actually building computers, but they're also doing it out of an office, that would probably have been an IBP use. Or like an in, in, indoor storage unit, that would probably have been an IBP. The special purpose ones are also combining a little bit. So previously hospital was separate from everything else, but like we only have one hospital, so it didn't really make sense to give that its own zone. So everything is now going into civic and institutional. So government buildings, like the library, um, probably parks and rec stuff. And then urban reserve, as far as I know, is still staying. That's kind of an oddball zone where typically when land is annexed into the city by the city, rather than upon request of a developer, it, it, it usually automatically defaults to urban reserve, which is a kind of like a, we'll figure it out later zone. Um, there's been talk in the steering committee of whether that makes sense or whether it should now default to some sort of dense zoning that we want to to kind of encourage everywhere. But then there's additional controversy on top of that, which is like, well, the rest of town isn't particularly dense. Do we really want a dense ring of stuff as we annex, you know, kind of forming a bit of a, uh, like a model of Saturn? So I think there's... That's still an open question. We're not sure how to... Ring city. Yeah, ring city. <laughs> not sure how to accomplish that one yet. Okay, so these are industrials. We've talked about that. Blah, blah, blah. Not much to talk about. Oh, in case you're curious, uh, both the universities have, have their own thing going on. So they get their own zones. They can do pretty much whatever, as you've probably noticed with things like the KU Crossing or the, st uh, the stadium project. They can, they can do whatever. So... Uh, what else, what else? Okay, planned overlay districts are kind of interesting. Planned development. So there's like planned residential development, PRD, which is like only for houses and apartments, and then planned unit development, I think, or urban development, which is just a little bit more broad, but they basically mean the same thing. It's a developer has a challenge to meet, like they can't get enough lots on the space to pencil out the profitability or maybe they want to do something slightly different, like, I want to do townhomes, and that's not currently allowed. A PUD or PRD is a way to kind of get around the current code. Um, and in limited cases, it's a way to shine light on new developments in land use and possibly transportation by showing, like, okay, we didn't anticipate everything that could possibly be done in the zoning code, but in the event that something new and cool comes along that we didn't think about, here's the process for it. So planned development is something like the place I live, which is called the Delaware Street Commons, and it's this odd co-housing, uh, it's like townhomes, condos, essentially, and it's not something that could have been built under the, the existing zoning code, so the original founders of it had to get a planned residential development to, to uh, make it work. The thing is, though, planned residential developments basically make their own mini zoning code with its own rules, kind of like covenants, but like enforceable by the city. So those stay in the books pretty much forever. Um, it, unless there's some kind of reconciliation as the zoning code evolves, like, okay, now we're close enough, let's get rid of the plan development, now we're just the regular city. That, that could happen, but typically they kind of stay there forever. And it ends up making these weird little fiefdoms of different zoning across the city, which is not ideal for uh, simplicity's sake. It also means if you get too many of those, that something's probably broken in your zoning code, that if too many places want to do something different and are approved, then maybe the zoning code should just allow that by right. So um, what we're seeing at this point in the city is that there are, there are quite a few planned uh, developments, and I think it's actually shown in this map. 
Um, there we go. Overlays. So, PRD and PUD is one of them, but there's also Historic District and Floodplain Overlays as well. I don't think this is even showing everything, but yeah. Essentially, it just adds a layer of complication on, on the zoning. So, what they're trying to do is make it a little bit more difficult to get a plan development, and the hope is that the new zoning code is permissive enough that it should really preclude most requests for that. Like, we've pretty much thought of everything that people are currently doing in towns of our size and shape. So, yeah. So thinking about co-housing in particular, because it's not used much in this town, but it is a great way to address senior housing, affordable housing. Family housing. Like, how would, how would the proposed changes impact the current co-housing in Lawrence, and how would it impact potential for more? So there's, so there's nothing preventing you from making a co-housing development out of existing buildings or planned structures that conform to the zoning code and dimensional standards. So if you just had a basic suburban neighborhood and wanted to pull in with 20 of your closest neighbors and make a co-housing, you could technically do that. But there's not really anything saying you can't. It's if you want to change the the sort of morphology of it. That is when you have to. So have you seen some of the co-housing developments in Colorado? I mean, they're, they definitely don't look like <laughs> neighborhoods in Lawrence, Kansas. Okay. What do they look like? They look like places where you walk around like you would in Delaware Commons. So but they're of, actually much more... Um, cottage court, maybe? Mm, like a lot of small units, but still a lot of green space, but no roads in between? A lot of green space, a lot of places for people to garden, to okay. walk around in the campus. It's more like a campus experience. Yeah. And they seem to be quite attractive for uh, senior housing. Mm. Yeah. And it just kind of concerns me. Like, if we're going to do all this, that seems like missed opportunity. If we're going to also say that a <clears throat> planned development has to be now five acres, that's pretty large. That one is a big concern of mine. So um, I think what they're trying to do with this is say, all right, if we have it only half acres, we're going to have tiny little spots of planned developments all over the all over the city. So ideally, we want to kind of focus our efforts on like, okay, this is a big project. It's going to be very, very different. Let's figure out what we're going to do with it. I think the problem, though, is that that kind of gives a, a very skewed, um, what's the word? It, it's kind of much more favorable to large developers, like the kind of entity that can actually amass five straight acres mm -hmm. um, and do something interesting with it, whereas half an acre, not much. That could be just a group in the community just doing their own thing. Um, so I, I feel like raising it from half to five really raises the barrier to entry um, to preclude any sort of neighborhood scale developers from participating in new and interesting kind of housing types. I feel like it kind of makes it only such that the biggest of the developers in town can do anything interesting. So I've made it fairly clear in my comments that I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> that being said, what you're talking about, the Colorado style ones, I'm not, I'm, I think I'm also in right Arizona now. has quite a few too. Is, are you talking about the really interesting one? Is that in Tucson where it's like a totally car free little enclave that looks really different from the rest of Tucson? I mean, there's enough that books are written on this kind of stuff. Mm. I think it'd be interesting to to look at something like that, see if it would fit in any of these zones. Because my assumption is that given that we've relaxed a lot of the dimensional standards and even the uses, I bet with the update, it might actually hold a lot more of these than they used to. Currently, probably very few would be able to fit into our zoning code. Um, but I do think it, oh, sorry, somebody. 
Hillary. Oh, I was just going to agree with you, Nick. I mean, I think um, like the DSC project could easily be like an R3 or an R4 uh, type of project that was highlighted above, mm-hmm. um, sort of medium density, maybe high density, and that a PUD would not be necessary to do that. And typically when I have seen PUDs or PUDs done elsewhere in the country, they are really big developments with master developers yeah. and then sub-developers underneath them doing one part doing affordable housing, one part doing market rate, um, you know, commercial, they all come together into that PUD. And I don't think that's necessarily, I personally don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because working to get a PUD together in a cohesive way is a job that should be done by a master developer. Um, but I think my sense is, as you're presenting this, Nick, like I said, like something like co-housing could easily be done without a rezoning effort, uh, given the new zoning designations. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of hoping. Um, but I do think it'll be very important to check that assumption once we finally see uh, uh, module two. Kind of, I mean, even just plug in Delaware Street Commons and see like, could we build this in an R3? Is this something that's allowed? So I think that'd be a really interesting exercise for, I mean, I could do that later. <laughs> so, um, sorry, were you gonna say something? No. no. Oh, okay. I'm just worried I'm steamrolling over people here. <laughs> okay, so here's the use table. This part is also particularly interesting. So um, what they did is now separate principles and accessories. So principal uses is what the principal structure, which I feel like is kind of self-explanatory, on a lot is allowed to do. Accessory, use, doesn't necessarily mean accessory structure. It just means something that was not the primary reason for this thing to exist. So say you got a hotel and it's got a bar in the lobby. That would be an accessory use, but the hotel is the primary use. So they've they've now separated principles and accessories. I don't know if it really helps, but it's interesting. So it's a little bit different. Um, What this use table basically says is, for a given use, you know, are you allowed to have a attached dwelling? Is that something that needs a special use permit? S is totally permitted, P, or I think this may be some other ones, or blank, it's not gonna happen. You can't do it. All right, it said that they removed floor space size-based limitations. I frankly don't remember that being in the original code, but I, I may not be that familiar with it, so. Okay, there's a whole bunch of other special topics that they that they wanted to f- uh, focus things on, so like, are, are we making sure that we're allowing for affordable housing? I think they're doing better. There's a lot more varieties of housing that are now allowed given the use table and the districts. What else? Okay. I think this is supposed to show that there's a ton of different kinds of uses that are now permitted in a lot of places. And this is probably one of the most interesting things. Um, If you'll see the R1 zone here, which is the like rural subdivision kind of density, um, dwelling attached up to four units is now permitted. So this is a huge change. Um, at this time, duplexes are only allowed where you have an RM12D or an RM12 um, multifamily zoning, which are not super plentiful. Accessory dwelling units, which are another way to add an additional dwelling, are only allowed in RS7, which is a 7,000 square foot lot for a single uh, family zone, for that and less dense. But all of a sudden, you can have Fourplexes. So I thought this was duplex last time I checked it. This is interesting to me. Um, so it's now saying that you can have a four-unit attached dwelling 
in a large residential lot, which frankly is kind of wild. That's actually pretty progressive. So um, it's going to be controversial, I can guarantee you. Because, um, you know, a lot of people prefer to live in neighborhoods that are very sparse and only have one kind of thing. But I think what needs to be kept in mind about zoning, at least in this context, is that, you know, this isn't saying everybody's going to have a fourplex on their lot or that you have to have one or that you can't build a single family home. It just means you can do other stuff now. You don't have to do just one kind of thing. Yeah, that's, huh. I feel like that got changed since last time I saw this. This presentation, by the way, came out after um, comments were closed from module one. So I have a feeling they probably took some of the comments into consideration. Okay, um, here's what we're talking about, the mixed use thing. Wait, yeah, so M1, M2, M3. Here's other things that are allowed. So now you can have work live units, your lot lines. Um, I think there were some others. Group home, this one's kind of interesting. I forget if it's group home or congregate living, but one of them, the way the definition reads, essentially defines boarding houses, um, which in most cities across the US were kind of legalized out of existence a couple of decades ago. Um, we may be bringing them back simply by a definition change, which is very interesting. Okay. There's stuff on sustainability. I think what matters the most to us is develop land use regulations and incentives to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You can do that both within the structure itself, you know, by incentivizing solar panels and uh, insulated windows and stuff like that. But you can also do that by just putting things closer together so you don't have to drive everywhere. So that's how it directly relates to us, I believe. And then you got develop a sustainable interconnected multimodal transportation system. That's not something that the zoning code can necessarily do, but we at MMTC, MMTC can't encourage that if we don't have a zoning code that makes that make sense, right? There's only so good a multimodal system is going to be if it's just you know single-use, non-dense housing. What else? I think this one's actually a little bit interesting too. To mitigate impacts caused by noise and light pollution and development ac activities. I think when people think of noise and light pollution, they think of like factories, scrapyards, but cars are one of the major sources of noise and light pollution in cities. So I think this is almost, could be implicitly um, taken to mean, you know, maybe let's cut down on vehicle miles traveled as well by building in a different pattern than we have for the last couple of decades. So, here we go. Here, here's the thing that, they, that they're doing approach-wise to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So bicycle parking requirements, that's directly in our wheelhouse. I, I think, in fact, pretty much all of these. Streetscape is a weird one, though, because that transcends both land use and transportation. That's what the whole corridor kind of looks like. So I don't know how that's going to shake out. All right, and this is more like environmental stuff, but... There is an equity piece here that I think does dovetail with transportation as well. Creating the patterns that allow that allow and encourage people to use all transportation modes. That's a big shift. So we currently allow people to use whatever transportation modes they want for the most part. Encouraging is another thing entirely. So I think part of, and this is personal opinion warning here, but I think part of encouraging is actually discouragement as well. Having ample parking that's free everywhere you go kind of encourages driving. It's so much easier to drive than do anything else. Whereas if you start to give some of that space over to structures and housing and 
businesses instead, you may not have as much parking at the destination and also probably encourage people to bike just because it's easier or take transit or walk or something else. So um, I'm not sure how the, as we say, the rubber is going to hit the road here, but um, I think what they're probably implying or what they intended to imply is that by making compact mixed-use neighborhoods, that encourages people to take alternative transit. And I think that that's true. So it's a multi-pronged approach. So one other thought that comes to mind, um, when people are using the bus to get to a shopping district, right now they're dropped off pretty far from the entrance of the, of the retail sites. Yeah, the huge sea of parking in between. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't really encourage people to, no. you know, go do retail shopping on the bus. So I don't know I think what changes could be in store that would kind of, you know, get people to use the bus as their primary way of getting around town. Well, I mean, for the folks who kind of have to or have chosen, you know, mm -hmm. some do choose to to use the bus because it's a great way to uh, save money as well. I think what you've seen in other communities that have liberalized their zoning a bit is retrofitting of a very auto-centric kind of strip mall development. So say you have a large sea of parking and then like a store way, way off the main road. What a lot of businesses have realized is they don't need all that parking necessarily. Like maybe they just did whatever corporate required or whatever the development code required at the time and then found that it's just way overbuilt. So you could probably build more structures in the parking lot that you currently have, get rid of some of the parking, and likely build stuff along the road. Um, we do have design standards somewhere that actually do encourage that. It's an old and hard to find document that technically still stands, but I think that's gonna have to come in module two in, in terms of incorporating design standards for things like Iowa Street, right? Like how do we make Iowa Street not suck for anybody who's not in a car? How do we do that? Um, and I, I think loosening up the dimensional standards and the, the uses is going to allow businesses who recognize that they can do better to do better. Like Dylan's on 6th and Lawrence, right? That is a huge parking lot and it's never ever full. So like there's plenty of space to build there and I wouldn't be surprised if Dylan's would like to sell off some of the land to maybe make some quick money or not have to maintain a parking lot. It's possible that their corporate strategy is actually very much in line with what's What's going on right now? I don't know, but I think there are a lot of opportunities to kind of reimagine what these spaces look like, and and add some stuff. Uh, what else? This one's kind of interesting, and this is actually what the meeting in the box was originally crafted around. If you've ever been to a planning meeting, or more like heard of one, where people are against something that's happening in the neighborhood, a lot of times the term character will be kind of thrown around and say, like, this does not fit the character of the neighborhood. In some cases, it truly does mean, like, this does not fit the aesthetics or the sizing. But in some cases, it can also be used to kind of be a bit of a dog whistle um, and say, like, hey, you know, this is a single-family respectable neighborhood. Duplexes are not allowed here. Like, we don't want those people. So what they're trying to do is, you know, if it's easier to build more inclusive housing by right in most neighborhoods, it's gonna be a lot harder to throw around the term character in that more, you know, kind of implicitly classist or racist way. So that's the hope. Again, we'll see how it happens, but that's down to module three, I think, in terms of how the process actually works. Thank you for your time and input. <laughs> I didn't make this presentation, but I think the consultants did a pretty good job with it. 
Um, there is a there's a couple of other resources on this website, which if you just look up Lawrence Lane Development Code, you'll hopefully come across this um, this handy dandy website that the consultant has made for us. It's a good way to kind of look over documents, see what events are coming up, the meetings. There's a new tool that is the zoning districts comparison, which is pretty cool. So one of the consultants did a um, kind of a GIS story here. So yeah, this is actually made in ArcGIS, where it's, it says like, all right, well, what's zoning? Here's what it looks like currently. Here's the residentials, here's the commercials, here's the industrials. Um, and then it allows you to do a side-by-side -side comparison of what is and what could be. There's no difference in terms of, oops, that's not good. Anyway, I've lost it. <laughs> All right, so anyway, you can just kind of see like, okay, I know my neighborhood has this stuff. If the zoning codes change, then this is what's going to now be allowed in my neighborhood. And you know, I think it's, it's an interesting way if you're, if you're curious about what the changes are to kind of... How do you get to that website? Um, it's directly on this same thing. It's... Uh, okay. There it is. Orange zoning comparison maps. And finally, there's the module itself, which is long. Um, I think the most important parts, there's just a few that are like... The, the most interesting information is squeezed into like five pages. So what you're probably going to want to look at, if you haven't had a chance to go through here yet, is the dimensional standards in case that's something that you care about. I think it's kind of hard to visualize unless you know what you have in mind. Like for me, I was looking specifically for, if we wanted to do townhouses, row houses, whatever you call them, could you do it? No, you can't really right now. So that's what I was looking for. Um, but there's, there's also the use standards, which are particularly interesting. So that, or uses. So that will show you in every single district, what can you do about it? I think that's here. Okay, so this is a big old table, eventually. I swear it was here. Okay, here we go. So table 20-8-1. This basically shows everything that is allowed and disallowed. So I think generally the story here is that a lot more things are allowed than used to be. And there's a lot more categories than there used to be as well. Um, because things have changed, right? I mean, the last Sunday code was 2006. So... Some things that didn't exist back then do now. So anyway, have a read through if you want. Each of these uses has a couple of dimensional and use standards in this section, but not fully fleshed out yet. So some are more so than others, like it tells you how high you can stack cars at the junkyard, but it doesn't tell you what kind of trees you need to separate the hospital from, but like it's, it, it's very oddly specific at this time. There's some very specific things about sexually oriented businesses, like pages and pages on it, that are basically just copy and pasted from the last one. And that's something to keep in mind as well. If you see something that seems out of date, it was probably copied and pasted. So the consultants didn't focus directly on that stuff, kind of assuming that we knew what we wanted when we had it written the first time. But a lot of the comments I was able to provide were things that are pretty outdated at this point that don't really apply anymore. So if you're interested, if you got a really boring weekend. <laughs> Is there any way to kind of, instead of looking at it by the comparison of the zones, um, is there any way to kind of extrapolate the density that is available hmm. with zoning changes? Not really. You'd have to use, a, um, use that translation table that they had. So there's a table at the very bottom of this thing um, that says here. Yeah, that's not really even very useful itself. 
So, you, you know, it, if you know that your home is on R7 zoning and you know it's going to be R2, unfortunately, that does mean that you'd have to go back to module one and see, like, what is mm -hmm. the density on that? By and large, it probably. I'm just wondering, I mean, their, their assumption is that these changes would lead to greater density of the community, right? So, over time. There should be some way to demonstrate, like, yeah, how much? I think it's pretty hard because some people are never going to change what their lot looks like. They're never going to mm -hmm. want an ADU. They're not going to add a duplex. They're not going to. Sure, but if I sell my property and someone says, oh, now yeah. I can. You know, I'm going to buy this and turn it into this other thing. I think seeing maximum density of dwellings would be super cool. And I think that should not be hard from a GIS standpoint. So um, that's a good suggestion. I recommend you go to this link <laughs> and say, hey, it'd be really cool. Like, just add an equation. That's all it takes. Like, mm -hmm. you have the data in this table. You got the, you know, zones. Just tell me, what's the maximum dwelling units? And that's probably all they could do. I don't think people... Actually, density of people breaker is going to be doable, but I do think dwelling units is definitely possible. Like if we if we cranked it to the max, given what's currently there. But I mean, I'm the kind of curious how that was how that would look against something like our kind of main transit corridors. Mm. I mean, are we able to get to the point where more people live within you know a couple hundred feet of transit stop? I think that's one of the main ideas of the mixed-use zone. So as you'll see, uh, hold up. there is a the map of all the commercial, I think, is very t telling. That's very much corridors. Mm -hmm. So all of these corridors that are made up currently of commercial are all going to become mixed-use. Okay. There's going to be residential allowed everywhere, as far as I can tell, except for like power plants. So like every other zone that currently excluded residential now is going to allow that. So high hy V could have been turned into a residential. You could add apartments space. above it. Yeah. Have you seen the? I mean, not the. I'm talking about the old high V. <laughs> I got turned into a church. Oh yeah. Yeah. If this were to be in place already, that could have been turned into an apartment yeah. complex. So instead of having your regular Costco, you could have what was proposed here. It was pretty cool. If you want to live at a Costco, I like the chicken bakes enough. I'd consider it. So there are, just because it's a big box store doesn't necessarily mean that it has to always be a big box. You can add stuff, like the Velocity Church or whatever, but could have had other stuff on it. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, the developer probably would have wanted that to be able to sell some units at least. So anyway. Um, well, it makes the property more valuable if you can absolutely more to it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, all these corridors, I think, could become significantly more dense. Whether or not people want to live on a major arterial, you know, as anybody's guess, especially the arterials as they stand right now, they're kind of noisy and fast flowing. But, you know, if transit is able to ramp up and alternative transportation, the corridors themselves might, look, might not look the same in the future to serve new density, right? So, kind of wide open right now. Oh, yeah. Nick, do you know what the next steps are? I think you said in November they're coming out with module two and comment. That's the last I sure? heard. Yeah, so, okay. oh yeah, I forgot to explain. Um, so the modules are kind of the, the breakdown of work that the consultant's doing, but the versions are as they improve those modules. So we only have draft one of module one, but we're hoping to see draft two sometime in the same, like around the same time that we see draft one of module two. So hopefully they will have incorporated some comments or bring some more sticky points back to us for further discussion at the steering committee. That's the plan. Great. So it'll be like an iterative comment period on yeah. like revised modules as well. 
Yeah, I think they've even extended the timeline a little bit, realizing that there's going to be a lot more public engagement than their typical clients have. Thanks. It also means we're going to delay any actions until like late 2024. But, but if that means that things are going to be more accepted and stuff that is counted as buy right actually will be able to happen by right, I think it's probably important to slow it down. Okay, so that was a ton of information. We're at 6.02, but we don't have to get back till 6.15, so if there's any other questions to kind of wrap things up, then... Yeah, I probably should. Is there any public comment in the room? Any public comment online? Everybody's busy tonight. Okay. Any final points from the commission, staff? All right. Thanks, Nick. In that case, Thanks, Nick. Thanks sure. Okay. I thought I was out of here. You know what would help is just. So we'll get started. Kurt, are you good to go? Yes. Cool. All right. Well. Welcome everybody again back to the October edition of the Multimodal Transportation Commission monthly meeting. We've already done our study session at 5 o'clock and we're now moving into the regular section of the meeting. Is there any more preamble we have to do? I think that's it, right? We're good. Yes, that's it? Okay. All right. Uh, first, we're going to approve the minutes of the September 6th meeting. Does anybody have any questions, concerns, or proposed revisions? Okay. I'll entertain a motion. I move to approve the minutes from last meeting. Second. All right. Uh, motion by Commissioner Reza, second by Commissioner Collette. All in favor, raise your hand. Thanks. It's unanimous. All right, moving on to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on any items that are not scheduled on the regular agenda. Public comment will not be received for staff items, commission items, or calendar. Each person or organization will be limited to three minutes. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented at this time. Individuals are asked to come to the microphone, sign in, and state the name and address. Speakers should address all comments to the commission. Is there anybody in the room who would wish to make a general public comment? Okay, anybody online? JT, I see you there. Can you hear me? Yep. Uh, this body has one of the more restrictive um, set of bylaws. For example, you don't allow public comment on commission items. Hmm. This would proper, properly belong there, but it's not on that. It's not on the list of one through five, so I'll make a comment anyway. There is no monitoring of this group of what's going on with the uh, Board of Wards, the BSCS uh, Board um, and Committees Structure Committee. Um, I've been following that very closely, and it's highly relevant to what the future of this body might look like. And um, frankly, it's not surprising that it's not on there. What's going on with that commission is not to, um, it's, it's frankly, it's not very honorable. Um, one, of the, one of the seating members of your board right now made the written suggestion 
that the Aviation Advisory Board be combined with your board as well as the PTAC, uh, Public Transportation Association or um, Advisory Committee, which I expect will become a fact, but the uh, Aviation Advisory Board is a whole different animal. If none of you have worked in um, capacities that had the FAA governing your operations, it's an entirely different animal. Um, the advisory board out there didn't get wind of this until late because the suggestion went into the recommendations without the body itself approving that. And um, so they um, set out to make a comment at the last public meeting that they had. What they discovered was that that meeting, like all the other so-called public meetings uh, of the committee itself, did not allow public comment. That meant they showed up to make a comment on a recommendation about the future of their advisory board and were turned away. Um, it caused such a fuss that they bent the rules and Craig had to run out and get a guy who had come to talk, a board member, to the parking lot, get him to come back in and talk. And I'm just, just saying that uh, I'm not surprised you guys aren't covering this, um, but um, incorporating the FAA into your body is absur absurd. You might as well think of the FAA as a vision zero um, element to the aviation field that is enforced. If you, if you work, if you work in a capacity that's governed by the FAA, you've got them on your shoulder at all times. You never stop thinking about cause and effect in your, your um, activity for oh. the building plane. Sorry, John, the time is up. Did you have any final thoughts? Well, I'm disappointed in this, this body again, as I have been in the past. Sorry to say that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Any more online who wish to make a general public comment? All right. In that case, we're going to be moving on to our regular agenda. 2024 Safe Routes to School Project Field Check Plans. This is the very rapidly expedited um, project, I guess, right? Is there somebody joining us via phone? <laughs> no. Okay, that's Good fine. evening, Chair Commissioners. Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager for Municipal Services and Operations. And I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here to walk through our field check plans for Safe Route to School. Um, so um, we're just kind of looking at the, the zoomed in piece of the title sheet here just to show you the extents of the project. Um, as some background, this project did receive some federal funding um, through the Safe Routes to School grant process through KDOT, so it is kind of a partnership project with them, um, with the idea of being we're gonna fill sidewalk gaps um, on Osdale uh, between 19th and 26th there on the south. We've also got some uh, Safe Routes to School gaps there on, on 25th Street that we're gonna fill in with this project.
before I jump into the plan sheets, um, just wanted to kind of go over a few of the highlights of the projects, and that's we're going to have a um, rectangular rapid flashing beacon is, is scheduled to be put in on West 22nd Street there, there next to the school. Um, we're looking at a bike crossing improvement at the intersection of 19th Street on the north end of the project. Um, as you may or may not be aware, that was a, originally part of our 21st Street Bike Boulevard project here uh, back in 2018, designed by Alta Conceptually. Um, our consulting engineer who did these plans was kind of teamed up with Alta at the, at the time, so now is kind of the time to bring them back on board and get some improvements in there. That, that concept is kind of the last uh, page of the packet on this agenda item. Um, reflects the work that Alta did at the time, not the improvement we would put in because uh, some assumptions, existing conditions, and guidelines have changed since then. So we'll, we're going to relook at that. But I wanted to include that in there to give you an idea of kind of what we're looking at. Um, we've also got a new bicycle and pedestrian uh, design guidelines that kind of came into place after this designer um, began work on the plans. So as part of our field check process, as you recall, field check plans are typically about 50% done. So um, as part of our changes and comments back to the consultant, we'll have them um, implement those guidelines. So uh, the main things we'll be looking at is, is um, markings at intersections because this is a collector road and we intersect a lot more collector roads, um, 21st Street, 25th Street, and 24th Street to the west, or pardon me, east of Osdale are all collectors, so we'd be looking at um, crosswalks there with um, continental markings, I believe. Um, and then really the, the last kind of big picture idea to consider when looking at these plans is that, you know, this isn't a greenfield project. It's going through existing established neighborhoods. So there's always compromise on how these sidewalk gap projects are actually built and designed. Um, the, the main kind of conflicts we've got here on, on this project are established trees and driveways kind of at steep grades. So that that's kind of the mindset I'll have when I look at these plans and provide comment back to the consultants is, uh, you know, we've got to get more distance between the trees and where you've got the sidewalk shown, or we've got to adjust the alignment of the sidewalk in, in relation to the driveway to make sure people can park in their driveways and we can still get a compliant ADA path through there when we reconstruct it. So with that being said, I will kind of jump through the plans here. They're, they're quite busy with notes. Um, so I'm going to keep it really high level unless there's specific questions. But the first plan sheet, try to zoom at the correct angle, um, starts here at the south on Osdale and runs north up to um, West 22nd Terrace. So basically, you've got um, Iowa Street just to the left of my cursor here, and north is going to the right. So again, we're on the, the east side of Osdale. So we run north toward 19th Street. that RFB that I was talking about would be right here at West 22nd Street across from the school. There's a currently an existing crosswalk there, so it would just be kind of an upgrade of that crossing. And another part of, excuse me, these safe routes to school projects we try to do is provide ADA connectivity to adjacent corners that, that might not exist or might not be up to standard. So um, with that RFB here that my cursor's pointing at, we are putting in a new ADA compliant sidewalk ramp. This next sheet is just simply moving further to the north um, from where we were at West 22nd going up to 21st Street. Um, you can kind of see the existing crosswalks are shown out there in a lighter gray to kind of get your bearings. Um, 
but uh, this sheet here just shows a typical sidewalk installation there on the east side of the road. Again, we jump across onto the, to the west side of the intersection here to, to fix a sidewalk ramp, and we do the same thing up at 21st. And then moving further north up to 20th Street, you see the same approach. Sidewalk on the east side of the road, jumping across to the west side there at 20th to install that sidewalk ramp. And then finally here we approach 19th Street. That's the little kind of excerpted piece of sidewalk down here. They, they tried to squeeze it in on this sheet, so it was a little hard to find, but that's where we connect to the uh, sidewalk on 19th Street. The next sheet we've got is kind of the far south end of the project starting at West 26th Street. This is where we're actually on the west side of the road. Um, going through these next couple of plan sheets, the houses are built up fairly high, so we've got steep driveways, and that's why you'll see that the hatched um, pattern there kind of showing the extents of what we're anticipating for drive driveway reconstruction. Typically, the further back you go is an indication of how steep that drive is. So, Jake, just out of curiosity, I think the plans typically are saying, like, remove and replace, but it's not quite as simple as that. I'm assuming there's grading involved as well, because that's why they're having to be removed in the first place. Yes, yeah, so if you look at our standard detail for a driveway, it tells you, you know, a six-foot apron from the edge of pavement, and then you've got that 2% or flatter slope where the sidewalk sits for ADA compliance to run through the driveway, and then behind that is really where where the, the concrete can take off on a street driveway, steep driveway, because we've got to go back in and tie in at a, you know, a certain percentage. We don't want to get too steep, so we've kind of got guidelines on that. Okay. So I, I assume then that where the sidewalk intersects the driveways, it's probably governed by engineering design standards with like a certain setback from the street then? It's, it's kind of conditional on the environmental constraints. So ideally, yeah, we would have, you know, four, five, six foot setback from the edge of pavement. That's where the sidewalk alignment would be. Mm -hmm. um, you can see if I you know, zoom in here a little bit, you can see the outlines of some trees here. And this tree, if you look you know, in street view might be a, a humongous oak tree. It doesn't show up really well in these plans. Mm -hmm. So in an instance like this, we may push the sidewalk all the way to the back of curb and it being so close to the driveway, the sidewalk may run right through the bottom of that driveway. Mm -hmm. In certain instances, we'll narrow that sidewalk down to three feet minimum, although we try not to do that. Um, that's kind of dependent on the grade to tie back in. That's kind of okay. getting in the weeds there, but. So it looks like then the, the distance of the sidewalk to the curb is Generally, as far as you can make it, I guess, well, it's probably dictated by both great entries, right? So, like, if you got a really steep one, you probably want it closer to the street. It's dictated by a lot of things. You know, on if we were going to start a brand new, you know, arterial or collector road out in the greenfield, you know, you're looking at five or six foot from the back of curb, so we've got no obstructions. We get to set the right-of-way. Yeah. And we're constrained by the right-of-way here and those grades. So it, that's really why the sidewalk can meander. Mm -hmm. trying to, to fit it in the, with the existing conditions. It doesn't appear that there's any right-of-way conflicts, which is good. So you, did you run into any situations where you had to bump into somebody's right-of-way and deal with that acquisition? Or Well, I mean, really what you're seeing here, those driveways are going to require temporary construction easements to, to build them because they are outside of the right-of-way. Okay. Um, 
really the only the only place we ever get into more than temporary construction easements will be on corners where the right-of-way constraints uh, with how the, the sidewalks intersect and we want to you know design the crossings that might require pedestrian easements okay. and there is one kind of on the far north end at 19th Street a small one that would be required So here, moving north, just really kind of more of the same. You see the sidewalk gets a little bit more uniform here in relation to the, the edge of pavement and the driveways, and that's really because we're flattening out with our lots. We're not as steep. With this next plan sheet, we're on the same, on the west side of the road, still moving north, but you also see we're up here at 25th where we're filling in a gap towards Cedarwood to the west, and we'll see that piece and further sheets. Again, still on the west side, approaching West 24th Street. And this is where you can see here in the light gray, the existing sidewalk shows up here. Um, I don't think uh, we don't show the existing sidewalk for the remainder on there. But th the other side of the street does have sidewalk. And moving up here to West 24th Street, kind of at the top of the hill. This is where our project is gonna jump sides of the street to fill in that gap on the east side. And from here, we'll just kind of run down the hill towards um, 23rd Street and where Perkins is at. Um, and in this particular location, uh, you may be familiar, there's kind of a, a steep drop off into the parking lot of the, the commercial development there. So we would anticipate a, some sort of wall on the backside of that sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Just not quite to that level of detail yet with these plans. And here we're at um, 23rd Street. Yeah, Perkins is here where my cursor is at, and then the entrance to the shopping center. So we get tied into the, the existing sidewalk network there. And then here we're looking at um, West 25th Street. There's a sidewalk gap on both the north and south sides. Iowa's running um, up and down here on the left side of the screen. Um, this was, these were projects that were pretty highly prioritized in our non-motorized projects prioritization policy pedestrian list. And we realized there was an opportunity to include these in with the project kind of after the grant application. So this was, felt like it was a good win for us to get these added in the project. Yeah. And then if I jump down another, so we're still on 25th Street heading east from Iowa. We're also able to throw in a, a small segment that was missing on Redbud Lane. It was just a really small um, missing sidewalk gap, so we're going to get that taken care of over here. And this piece goes all over to Ridge Court. On the other side of Ridge Court, we do have sidewalk. But between Ridge Court and Cedarwood, sorry, between Ridge Court and Cedarwood, there is sidewalk, but once we get to the east of Cedarwood, there isn't. So that's where we, again, fill gaps on the north and south side until we reach Osdale. And that, I believe, is just a repeat of the sheet we just saw. And then this just is the extents of that little piece of sidewalk gap on Redbud Lane. So now north is to the right, and Iowa Street's going to be up here to the top of my cursor in that direction. So just you know, a few hundred feet of, of sidewalk that was missing there somehow. And then the last sheet we've got here was just the uh, kind of concept design of the, the bike crossing potentially at 19th Street that we're going to have our consultant look at.
and that is really all I've got. So happy to take any more questions the commission might have. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Any questions from the commission? Technical stuff, clarifications? I think we'll try to keep it relatively technical and then do public comment. That's raising your hand, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. Okay. All right, now. I had a quick question about the costs. So it says on the agenda item report the fiscal impact is NA, but the cost of construction is about 1.5 million. Um, is there any information on just what the cost of the design was or how much the grant is going to cover? Uh, I know the grant, I think, is $955,000. That typically is 80% of the construction cost when we estimate it with the grant application. Mm -hmm. So um, in this case, our estimates increased because we added some scope above and beyond that grant application, and um, we've got that funded through our five-year plan. Was this the Transportation Alternatives Grant? Yes. Or, okay, cool. Which has been pretty successful in the past, right? So you, mm -hmm. have you received it yet, or? With this, with? Uh, for this one. So you, you, you submitted the application for funding. Have you received the grant no. award? So the way these grants work is you, the city pays for all the design and utility relocations, and the grant reimburses us for construction. So we actually have to build it, or we have to award the construction contract, build it, and then send in reimbursements to KDOT. So I didn't realize that. Okay. Like a mail-in rebate. That's weird. <laughs> it's like going to Menards. Okay. How interesting. Okay. Um, well, that's great news that, that you were able to get a grant for this. And this is a, it seems like a really needed part of town to get some sidewalks. So it seems like a very important project. So glad to see it's going well. All right. If there's no more comments on the commission, let's take public comment. First in the room. Going once, going twice. All right. Anybody online for public comment? All right. Well, I think our action was just to consider receiving the plans. <laughs> what if we just considered not to receive the plans? <laughs> it's weird that that's an option. Okay. Um, so I have just a quick question yeah, sure. about the timing. When is construction anticipated on this? Yep. So um, we would hope to finish up design probably by spring and let the project then. Yeah. But it, it's going to construction in 2024. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Just the kudos to all the staff for getting this thing done so fast. Because um, this all was part of a very expedited initiative, right? Like after the boundaries changed, you had to kind of refigure out everything. So probably a lot of moving parts here. And being able to get funding for it uh, as well is awesome. So I think this has been part of the safe routes plans for a while. Oh, has it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I missed that. Okay. It's. So this isn't the redrawn routes that Jessica was working on. These are already slated. Okay. Yes. I missed that yep. part. Yeah, they're not. They're not new routes. Okay. <clears throat> it's just a neighborhood that doesn't have many sidewalks. Yeah. Hmm. It's. It's in kind of the heart of that transportation disadvantage area. So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Pretty big impact. That's what I'm hoping. Okay. Well, in that case, I guess we've uh, we've considered receiving them, and our feedback is. It's looking good. Um, actually, I, I guess just out of curiosity, as an engineer, was there anything that you saw when you got the plans from the consultant that gave you pause or was like surprisingly good or just out of curiosity? My my biggest concern goes back to that point in fitting in the infrastructure with the like the existing landscaping that's there, and I, I see our alignment needing to change in on many many places. Okay, <laughs> just like very small tweaks, but all over the place. I guess based on on the ground information. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
is tricky. Um, oh, Damon, you had a question about street trees, but it sounds like the answer is that everything that gets taken out will be replaced, more or less. Is that right? That, that's typical procedure, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I saw in the subdivision standards, and I don't know if that would apply here, that you can't have any street trees between the curb and the sidewalk if it's three feet or less, but if it's more than three feet, I guess, then it's fine. Um, just out of curiosity, if you were to, say, remove a street tree that was in the direct path of the sidewalk, would a constructor typically put that tree further away from the street or closer to the street as long as it's within the right-of-way? Well, what we do is not let our contractor replant trees. So we'll work with our Parks and Recs partners, you know, they're the horticulturists, to go back and site and plant the trees. And they typically work with the property owners as well and let them choose from species. It's cool. a pretty good process. Um, is there any way that we can influence the placement to try to be closer to the street as possible, just as traffic calming and kind of a buffer between cars and the sidewalk? Or is that kind of up to Parks and Rec and property owners? The, the trees themselves, the replanting? Yeah. For trees that can be replanted, is there any way to kind of ensure that they'll be even better than they were, right, in terms of where they're placed? You know, it's a question I haven't thought about a lot, but my, my kind of my first reaction is a lot of times we're dealing with, you know, three, four, five feet, and that's not a lot of room to plant a tree that's not going to damage the infrastructure you've just built or the adjacent street. Um, I mean, if there's, like, subgrade infrastructure, obviously there's not really anything that you can do. But but if for some reason on these streets there isn't, a, I feel like it'd be a nice thing to, to try, just to get some kind of traffic calming that is, you know, not necessarily a speed bump. The... Uh, the whole idea of like having the walls kind of close in on you so it feels like more visually constricted. And I agree, it's not something I've actually really thought about much at all before Damon brought up the question of like, what about street trees? Like, oh yeah, we could be using this as an opportunity to get like free traffic coming just by putting them in a slightly different spot. So I guess it's probably at the parks and, parks and rec a little bit to kind of tell you like, these ones have roots that definitely destroy sidewalks or these ones have roots that are deep and aren't gonna ruin anything. I guess all I ask is that it be considered. Um, I realize there are definitely some limitations, so okay. it's all good. Listen, I was going to ask, um, <clears throat> I'm a future phased project on the bike infrastructure on 19th and Osdall. Um, do you know what the timing will look like on that or how that'll fit into everything? The, the timing on construction? Or I, I see that it's a concept right now. Is it timing on construction? Is it timing on plans, field checks, just I don't know what, what are the next steps for it. Sure, yeah, so uh, essentially this kind of got added into the scope of the project after we had proceeded with them. Um, so we kind of have a late start on it and that's why we don't have like actual plans in here with the submittal. It's, it's in progress, we need to provide them some direction. So I mean, we will see this probably back when they, they'll probably give some office check plans that are closer to 90% complete and that's when we'll all really see lines on, on paper on what's being proposed. Was I, was I able to answer your question, Commissioner? Yep, thank you. Okay, I think that's it. Thanks very much. And if that's the case, I didn't, that concludes our regular agenda. This was a quick meeting, but there's quite a few commission items, and first we have staff items. So turning it back over to staff, um, is there anything you wanted to bring up or? Nope. Probably a week. No staff items tonight. Okay. I guess those two commission items. So, Commissioner Bautuska, do you have an update on the Climate Action Plan? Met once more, uh, and they they think they'll 
be ready to join us for November study session. So okay, they're yeah, they're optimistic. So it's good. We don't have to bump them. So that'll be that'll okay. be great. Cool. Um, is the plan draft available yet? I forgot. Not yet. Okay. I was looking for some good light bedtime reading, but perhaps later. Okay. I said November, so when I said November, I was like, do we need to push you? Our meeting's on the 6th. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. Keep it. Who's in charge? Is it the cl- uh, county's climate people? Yeah, okay. county sustainability staff. Yeah. Okay. Any questions on an action plan? Okay. I'm not going to give you a land development code at steering update. I feel like you've been updated within an inch of your life, so we're going to move on to the next one. Bicycle Wayfinding Plan Committee. Um, we had the second meeting. Um, I, I'm taking this three. I, there may be another one added on. I'm not sure. But we had the second meeting about uh, three weeks ago, and there's another one scheduled for next, um, next Friday. Um, at the second meeting, they gave us... Uh, a couple of concepts to to consider. One they called new fashioned, and the other one was uh, vibrant. And so, just a couple of different styles. Um, I can share those um, uh, slides with you if, if anyone is interested in seeing what those look like. I did um, um, the um, the Lawrence Bicycle Club um, board met last last week, I think, and. Um, we shared those slides. The, the rep from from LBC and I shared the shared those slides with them, and they're you know looking at it to make comment back back to it. But generally, it seemed like the general consensus at the meeting was that the that the first plan um, was more. Uh, everyone felt like it was more clear to, to read and um, kind of what's going to happen at the third meeting is coming back to us with the, um, some ideas on hierarchy of what goes actually goes on to the site. Yeah. So what we saw was the, um, you know, kind of the conceptual artistic design of it, but then the challenge is what do you actually put on those and how much and, you know, what's, how much can you put on there that's still readable to uh, bicyclists as they, as they go by. So um, that'll be interesting to see. I know what they've done so far is just had col- uh, up until the last meeting was just collected a lot of common destinations and, and ideas for you know what to what to put on those signs and then you know some sort of a structure to uh, to narrow that down and, and make it um, um, useful to to a variety of, of riders, both you know faster and slower and, and pedestrians as well. So. Um, we, we uh, hope to, you know, be able to, you know, talk about that a little bit more at the next meeting. Okay. Um, if you're on the Zoom meeting, maybe you might be able to share your sure. s- screen. I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what new fashion versus vibrant yeah, is. Right. Just to get um, a preview. I guess I don't know how to um, share this, but. Yeah, it sounds like your mandate is going from that of graphic design to now cartography. So you have to figure <laughs> out how much right. detail and where and if it's readable. That should be yeah, interesting. Yeah, right. Um, Have you gotten a chance to propose looping in the Art Center or Van Gogh by any chance, or this is going to be run by graphic designers exclusively? There we go. No. Sheen is. Oh, it's loading. There we go. There we go. Okay, so this is this was the first concept, and I think so. You know, at our very first meeting, it was kind of looking at logos and kind of 
general you know concepts for the sign so that's where uh, if you see up here that's you know kind of a nod to the city to the city logo you know we looked at a lot of different ones and you know people felt like simple but still tying it to Lawrence and um, so this is what they came back with and um, so it, uh, you know providing that level um, and then let me make this a little bit bigger and then you know so different applications so kiosk or you know different different locations may have a different um, you know different shapes is that readable to everybody yeah. um, enough. so with different destinations and um, you know and so the wording on these you know greenway that you know that's not probably not going to be what's up there, but just as, as an example of what these signs might look like and um, you know, different uh, configurations that would allow you to add, uh, you know, so sign tops. Let's see, I think it's not on here or not. Sorry, is the green one the vibrant or is that just uh... No, so I haven't gone to the vibrant yet. Okay. So these are all one part of one concept. I'll, go, I'll move here to the next one. So why are some green and why are some blue? Well, I think just having us look at the different different concepts, and so what you know, the feedback we gave them was that you know these signs with the dark blue and the white lettering seemed to be much more, uh, you know, with that kind of contrast, seemed to be a lot more readable. Yeah. Um, so that's, and then you know the possibility of you know it wouldn't be these icons, but using icons. I mean, some of them might might be included, like transit, for instance, but. Uh, um, you know, the idea of putting a, an icon on there or, um, to to be able to you know to help communicate the the decisions and so decision turns confirmation. So some of these over here on the right would be, you know, once the turn had been made and 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 confirming that that you were still in the right right path. The next one, this is the vibrant Lawrence, and so they were using. Um, you know, some different colors, um, you know, black on 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 you know, the various colors rather than the white against the dark, um, and then here are just some examples of how they might be, what they might look like as far as different configurations. And again, uh, so in some cases maybe a map, uh, you know, so maybe on the loop or something a different points, a, a, a map could be incorporated into it. But the, these kinds of structures could be with either concept, as I think it's just showing us some mm -hmm. different ways that um, as far as the, the notations and what that might look like. So kiosk and then decision turn and confirmation. Um, and again, here's a few more examples. Um, but in general, you know, we thought the the first concept was more more readable than than this so um, I don't know what they're going to come back with whether some hybrid of, <laughs> of those two but uh, you know that'll be um, that's that's what they were gonna gonna be working with so okay and then you can kind of see where they kind of combine the two concepts and that although they still call that vibrant so um, I think the general principles of you know the highest contrast possible um, and a reasonable amount of information on there without having too much, you know, yeah. so that it's not, uh, people will not be able to, um, you know, to interpret it as they're, as they're going for, uh, 
or, um, or wayfinding. Okay. Uh, Hillary, did you have anything to add? No. Okay. I know that we have the next upcoming meeting. I accidentally forgot to go to that <laughs> last meeting, but I did review it. So my apologies. Uh, yeah, Hillary, I'm going to be out of town on on this next for this next meeting, but I saw that you had confirmed um, mm -hmm. for that meeting. So if you can uh, take the MMTC uh, banner for the for this one, that would be great. Okay. Yep, I will. Right. So I think my main question, and it's kind of silly, but I brought it up last time about possibly incorporating local artists through probably like the Art Center Van Gogh. Have you guys had a chance to propose that to the consultants? And if so, were they receptive or were they like, no, we're just going to do this all in-house? Yeah, we haven't really gotten to, you know, to that, to that level yet. So, okay. Yeah. In terms of what exactly that, that might look like. Okay. Any other questions? All right. Moving on to Vision Zero. Has anything happened yet? No, nothing. I, I think I'm gonna to touch base with Jessica. I'll just ping her and ask if there's any plan moving forward for it. We uh, got a little update. We got the RFP out uh, for, to, uh, for us to solicit for a consultant to help us. Um, hopefully we have that executed, contract executed by the end of November. Cool. Okay. So that's a tentative timeline. Then we'll get going. Yeah. I'm particularly excited about this project, so that'll be cool to see I get rolling. Lawrence Loop, update. I don't, uh, I think the only update since I was gone is that the city commission officially established a steering committee in the August 6th city commission meeting, but okay. um, as of then, I haven't received yeah, any. We, we have not met yet. Um, we're, we're supposed to get our kind of draft community engagement plan from the consultant this week. So hopefully that'll identify some dates we're looking at for the first steering committee meeting. So I don't know if that'll end up, if we'll be able to squeeze it in this month or if it might uh, happen next month. I think based on the recommendation to the city commission, what like it was like August to November was like community engagement and uh, uh, like partner or planning so hopefully soon we get to do that yes you know. sorry which meeting did you say it was the august 6th august 6th um, i mean august 8th maybe or maybe august 8th okay. it was one, one i'm just making sure i'm not reading the calendar wrong no, i'm just curious sure. to see who else is on it um uh, i got it pulled up okay um that'd be interesting to see parks and rec east lawrence neighborhood association Piccany neighborhood north lawrence Old West Lawrence, um, Explore Lawrence, the Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission, Historic Resources Commission, Friends of Lawrence Area Trails, Live Well Douglas County, Downtown Lawrence Inc., uh, Chamber of Commerce, Friends of the Ka, and One Tribal Representation TV. To oh, interesting. Okay. Sounds pretty possible. So whenever we meet, I'll give you an update next, hopefully next month. Okay. Sweet. That's a pretty big board, but it sounds like they got everybody. So, cool. Okay. Um, I think that covers it for scheduled commission items. Any other um, sort of ad hoc commission items people wanted to bring up? All right. That leads us to calendar. So our next month is going to be the climate action plan update and uh, stream maintenance plan, which is going to be Basically, just going over what you know 
what streets are going to be maintained and where the options, I guess, opportunities are for adding bike infrastructure. Is that right? And then MTMP revisions, probably around the application for the pilot or other stuff too? Uh, primarily around the pilot. Okay. Yep. I would like to propose maybe having a study session soon with Parks and Rec. I sent you an email about that, but I think it's it's been a while since we've checked in with them. So since we don't have anything else scheduled, um, I'd be interested to hear on kind of what what their views and perhaps challenges are, opportunities for how they maintain all the stuff that, that we kind of put forward, like paths, basically, uh, shared use paths. I'd be interested in street trees, because that's something that might actually affect us. I feel like there's something else, but yeah, Parks and Rec does kind of link with us a little bit more than I sometimes realize, so. Um, Would it make sense to have the study session after the new director is hired, or hmm? what is the status with that? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. do, you, do you guys know what the timeline is? I don't know the timeline. His retirement's not till December. Uh, <clears throat> so Yeah, so that'll hmm. be a while. So maybe getting him on the way out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, who's the deputy director, Mark Hecker? Mark Heckler. Yeah. If we can get both of them, that'd be good. Because mm -hmm. um, I have a feeling there's a chance he will ascend to the director, probably. So. Um, all right. Well, that's, that's my idea for December. But if anybody else has any study sessions they'd like to put forward, then I'm open. So. I think the uh, ADA transition plan draft is something we tentatively targeted for December. OK. Um, as an agenda item? as a study session okay but it could be we if there's some we're flexible okay okay <clears throat> and then i mean by the time december rolls around hopefully the second module of the land development code update will be out so we may have more to talk about but i don't know what that's going to be just yet so we'll have to cross that bridge when we get there okay um anything else before we adjourn Otherwise, I'll entertain a motion to adjourn. I always forget if it's a motion or not. I move. I, I move to. All right, first by Rosa, second by Colette. All in favor, raise your hands and shut down your computers. Thanks. Thank you. It's a quick meeting. Thank you, everybody.